the main groups of animals by william ogle this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards aristotle has left us no systematic classification of animals it will nevertheless be convenient to arrange the chief groups recognized by him in a tabular form and the form which seems most consistent with his views is that in which these groups are placed in linear series according to their supposed degrees of excellence before however doing this it will be well to consider very briefly what aristotle means when he speaks as he so often does of one animal being superior to or more noble than another and also to inquire what were the external characters by which he thought such superiority could be recognized when we have done this we can proceed to apply aristotle's tests of comparative excellence to his various groups with the fair expectation of being able to arrange them in much the same order as he would himself have done one the basis of all excellence is the presence of a soul that is the possession of life Quote, anything nobler or better than the soul cannot possibly exist Close quote. de anima book one five fifteen and again quote, to be is better than not to be to live than not to live things with a soul than things without the soul itself than the body de generatione book two one two as things that live are superior to things that are lifeless so also things with much life are superior to things with little Quote, souls differ from each other in their degrees of honor de generatione book two three eleven and the difference is thus set forth Quote, the faculties of the soul are many and though everything that lives has a soul yet have not all souls all these faculties in some souls there is but one faculty in others several in some all the faculties are the nutritive the sensitive the appetitive the motor the intellectual in plants there is no other faculty than the nutritive but in all animals there is not only this but the sensitive and as a necessary consequence the appetitive as well some animals there are again that possess also the motor faculty and a few such as man and any other creature if such there be that equals or surpasses him in honour in whose soul there is still further the intellectual faculty and reason de anima book two three one in proportion as the soul includes more or fewer of these successive faculties 
will its possessor's place be higher or lower in the scale of excellence. At the bottom will come organisms whose life is confined to nutrition. Next, those that are also endowed with sensation. Then, such as besides feeling are also capable of locomotion. And lastly, those who add to these endowments the possession of reason. The few groups thus obtained will again be divisible into smaller groups, according to the degree in which each successive faculty is developed. There are degrees of nutritive power, of sensibility, of motility, of intelligence, and the question next to be considered is, what were the external characters by which Aristotle thought that he could determine these degrees? 2. The nutritive soul manifests itself, of course, in growth and reproduction, and the tests of its power are the bulk of the body, and the duration of life, which is usually proportionate to the bulk. Quote, For, as a rule, big animals are long-lived, though not invariably. Close quote. De long vitae, four, three. De generatione, Book four, ten, one. The number of the progeny is not so good a measure as might be expected, because the requirements of a large body on the nutritive material may prevent an animal of great size from being prolific. The sensitive soul is of course certainly present if the organism have external organs of sense, but a doubt may arise when, as in the sponge, there are none such. The test in such a case is to see whether the organism shrinks when irritated. The degrees of sensibility must be judged of by the number and perfection of the organs of sense, and especially of those senses from which are derived the perceptions which conduce most to knowledge. As to the motor soul and the intellectual, the tests are self-evident, and may therefore be passed over. But besides these special tests applicable to the several parts of the soul, Aristotle had other more general ones by which he gauged the excellence of the soul as a whole. Foremost among these was the temperature of the body. For though Aristotle would not allow, with Democritus, that heat was identical with the soul, that is, with life, Yet he admitted that heat was its necessary agent, so that the two were inseparably conjoined, and the degree of the one became a measure of the degree of the other. Quote, the nobler an animal is, the greater is the amount of heat it possesses, for with greater heat there must of necessity be combined a nobler soul. Close quote. De respiratione. 13.2. But how was the temperature to be measured? As Aristotle had no thermometer, he could only form a notion of the relative temperatures of different animals, either directly by touch or indirectly by inference from structure. On touch, though sometimes used by him, he apparently placed but little reliance. For, as he says, it could not tell whether the heat was intrinsic 
or whether it was merely accidental and derived from without. Moreover, even supposing that touch were a sufficient measure of ordinary heat, it by no means would necessarily follow that it would be an equally good test of vital heat, which was something in Aristotle's opinion quite distinct in its efficacy from common heat, and would require to be measured by its own appropriate standards. He relied, therefore, mainly on inference from structure, the presence or absence of blood, and its relative abundance gave him indications in which he had absolute confidence. No less certain was the evidence given by the presence or absence of a lung, and by its degree of development. For, by his theory of respiration, the whole purpose of a lung was to temper the excess of heat. Those animals, he says, quote, are the more perfect that have the greater amount of heat, and in animals that have blood the measure of natural heat is the lung, for those that have a lung are invariably hotter than those that are without one, and among such as possess one, those in whom it is richly supplied with blood and soft in texture are hotter than those in whom it is bladdery or hard, or contains but little blood. De Generatione, Book Two, One, Sixteen. Besides the blood and the lung, Aristotle had a third structural measure of temperature in the brain, which shared, as he thought, with the lung, the office of reducing excess of heat. The close connection, however, of the brain with the higher sense organs and its delicate sympathy with the heart made its presence and size a measure of the intellectual faculty rather than of the excellence of the soul as a whole. A fourth measure of animal heat, on which Aristotle placed great reliance, was the condition of the embryo when liberated from the mother's body. Impressed by the manifest action of heat in effecting the development of the eggs of birds and reptiles, he erroneously though not unnaturally inferred that the more mature condition of the mammalian embryo at the time of birth was mainly due to its having been subjected to a higher temperature in its mother's womb, and similarly that all other ovipara must be colder than birds and reptiles, inasmuch as their eggs were, as he thought, deposited in a still less advanced state. This, however, we shall have to consider at greater length hereafter. There remains yet a fifth among Aristotle's thermometers, which, almost childish as it now appears, yet requires a moment's notice. One of the primary axioms upon which all his notions of the material world were built was that it was the inherent property of heat and therefore of everything possessing heat, to mount upwards. He fancied that varying indications of such a tendency were to be traced in the ordinary attitudes of animals. At the bottom of the scale came those humble creatures, in whom there was so little elevating heat, that their bodies lay prostrate on the ground, or were even 
like plants actually attached to it while at the other end came man of all animals alone erect and of all the one with most heat while between these two extremes came animals in intervening gradations of heat and corresponding differences of bodily attitude such were aristotle's tests of vital heat the relative warmth of animals was not however his only though his main guide in judging of the soul's excellence another to which he not unfrequently refers was the degree of complexity of the organism the nobler the soul the more varied its activities and the more numerous the instruments it requires Quote, for when the functions are but few few also are the organs required to affect them for this reason animals present a greater complexity of structure than plants and this complexity is again more marked in some animals than in others being most varied in those to whose share has fallen not mere life but life of high degree Close quote. de partibus book two ten three nature might of course use one organ for many purposes and so endow a simple organism with complex activities sometimes indeed she does so but as in handicrafts so in the body it is better to have special instruments for special operations than single instruments for multiple uses nature never therefore when she can help it acts like the artisan who for cheapness makes a spit and lamp-holder in one in the more perfect animals then there are numerous organs each with its separate office whereas in less perfect ones such division of labor is much less complete and in some is so slight that when the body is cut into bits each separate fragment can continue to live independently for a short time there being scarcely more unity between them than if the animal had been a plant or an aggregation of distinct animals into a single mass Quote, but in animals of the most perfect conformation no such phenomena as these are observable because their nature has attained to the highest possible degree of unity Close quote. de juvent two thus centralization of vitality becomes a test of excellence as well as complexity of structure the one like the other implying division of labor three these tests we may now proceed to apply but it is important to bear in mind that no one of them was supposed by aristotle to be sufficient by itself the true nature of any group is not to be defined by a single differentia but requires many that is to say its position in regard to other groups must be determined by a consideration not of one but of all its characters and by striking a balance between those points in which it excels and those in which it shows inferiority how inadequate a single test may be 
and into what confusion it may lead, Aristotle points out in the De Generatione, Book 2, 1, 15, selecting the apparent degree in which the instruments of the motor soul are developed as an example. So also he admits that the test on which he chiefly relies in that treatise in judging of the heat of animals, namely the condition in which the young are produced, is not a perfectly sure one. Other conditions, such as moisture, having some influence, and even cold itself, sometimes producing indirectly the same result as heat. But though Aristotle thus refused to accept any one test of excellence as sufficient, yet it is clear that he held some of his tests to be much more trustworthy than others. What was wanted was a test that should gauge the soul. But the soul is incorporate in matter, and such is the uncertain character of matter that the bodily organs do not always correspond with perfect strictness to the soul within. This makes it, quote, impossible to classify by functions common to body and soul. Close quote. De Partibus, Book 1, 3, 12. As we can only judge of the soul through the body, every one of the tests has this failing. This is partly obviated by taking many tests in place of one, and by selecting those which give most direct information about the soul, that is to say, with the least implication of matter. Aristotle divides all terrestrial things into three great primary groups. Alpha, things without a soul, edest, the inorganic kingdom. Beta, things with a purely nutritive soul, edest, the vegetable kingdom. Gamma, things with a soul that is not only nutritive, but sensitive, edest, the animal kingdom. These three groups, he says, are not separated from each other by deep-cut lines of demarcation, but nature passes from one to the other so gradually and imperceptibly that it is sometimes difficult to say under which heading a given object should be classed. What group it was, with such dim vestiges of life, as to bridge over the interval which divided plants from the inorganic world, Aristotle does not say. We may, however, fairly suppose that he had in his mind the lichens and the mosses, of which latter Lord Bacon spoke as interposed between corruption and life. But as to the transition from plants to animals, he is more explicit placing between them the indiscriminate collection of organisms which in after times were confused together as zoophytes, but for which Aristotle had no common name. This group, then, in which he included sponges, sea anemones, jellyfishes, holothurias, and starfishes, stood at the bottom of his scale of animal life. Their inferiority was shown by even their common sensibility, being so scantily developed as to become sometimes of doubtful presence, while in none of them 
were there any organs whatsoever of higher sense. None of them, moreover, possessed organs for active locomotion. Such of them, as changed place at all, did so at the mercy of the waves and currents, floating passively about, like plants detached from the soil, to which the rest were more or less permanently fixed. As to the reproduction of these animals, Aristotle says but little. He supposed them to be developed spontaneously, and to be altogether without organs of generation, a character which, with the absence of event, and their simple structure generally, approximated them closely to plants. From this intermediate group we pass insensibly to true animals, that is, to organisms whose sensibility is indisputable. These form two great groups, those that have blood, and those whose nutritive fluid is not true blood, but something analogous to it, a division which coincides with the modern one introduced by Lamarck into vertebrata and invertebrata. To this division of animals, into those with blood and those without, it is objected that the one group has but a negative character. The objection is drawn from Aristotle's own quiver, and is equally fatal to Lamarck's invertebrata. Aristotle's division may, however, be so expressed as to avoid this criticism. Animals whose nutritive fluid is red, and animals whose nutritive fluid is white or colorless. But to this again it is objected that some worms have colored blood, and it may be added that there is a fish whose blood is colorless. Similarly, we might object to Lamarck's division that there are fishes whose corda dorsalis is never replaced by vertebrae. Nomenclature is, after all, to a great extent a matter of simple convenience, and, when a convenient name has been found for an undoubtedly natural group, exceptional cases to which it scarcely applies, though they require to be noted, yet hardly suffice for its displacement. Vertebrata will probably be retained, in spite of the exception to its accuracy given above, nor are we likely to discard the familiar reptilia, though the pterodactyl flew, and though the turtles swim. I am by no means sure that Aristotle would have abandoned his group names even had he known of the exceptions to their accuracy. But did he know of them? Of the fish with colorless blood, it need scarcely be said he was ignorant. But earthworms can hardly have escaped his notice. It is strange, however, that he never makes definite mention of them. It may be, nay probably is the case, that the animals he once alludes to as popularly called entrails of the earth are earthworms. If so, we have another explanation of his division, for, sad to say, he thought that these were embryonic forms of eels, that is, of animals with red blood. 
the bloodless animals are in every respect less perfect than the sanguineous and inferior to them they are as a rule of smaller size and live for a shorter time they are colder as is shown not only by their want of blood but also by the almost universal absence of any special provision for refrigeration such as gills and lungs and brain the simple bathing of the surface with air or water sufficing as a rule to temper their small heat another proof of this cold nature is furnished by the immature condition in which they produce their young none of them deposits a perfect ovum an ovum that is which has attained its full growth but if they produce an ovum at all it is at best an imperfect one an ovum that is that increases in size after it is deposited and though this is true of some of the least perfect among the sanguineous animals namely the scaly fishes it is true of all the bloodless kinds it should be said in explanation of this latter ground of distinction that the ova of fishes and mollusca and other animals that lay their eggs in water or damp situations sometimes increase considerably in size after being deposited this increase was supposed by aristotle to be due to actual growth whereas it is in reality attributable to mere imbibation of water this explanation applies to most of his classes of bloodless animals but not to insects these he thought produced something even less mature than the imperfect ovum of the water animal and to it he gave the name of scolex the scolex was distinguished from the ovum not only by being less mature but by being metamorphosed as a whole into the perfect animal and not as the true ovum serving partly for the nourishment of the embryo partly for its development it has been supposed from this that aristotle had in some extraordinary way overlooked the eggs of insects and fancied that these animals produce primarily grubs or maggots this however was not so he says that there are two kinds of scolex one capable of motion in other words a grub or maggot the other incapable of motion and so excessively like an ovum in shape size and consistency as to be indistinguishable from it excepting by considering its ulterior changes the insects which produce the moving scolex or grub are those viviparous species in which as in the flesh-fly the ovum is hatched into a grub before being extruded from the parent's body while the ordinary oviparous insects and spiders are those which produce the motionless egg-like scolex why however it will be asked should aristotle have considered the scolex whether in shape of egg or of grub to be more immature than an ovum simply because the condition of scolex was antecedent to and preparatory of the condition of chrysalis or pupa 
and the chrysalis or pupa which neither ate nor grew and was the motionless form which immediately gave rise to the perfect animal was supposed by him to correspond to the true ovum of other animals though however it corresponded to an ovum it differed from one because the whole of it was converted by metamorphosis into the perfect animal still less mature than the scolex was the generative product of certain testacea this consisted at most of a slimy fluid produced asexually and scarcely differing from the inorganic mud which could itself generate these animals spontaneously though its power of so doing was somewhat increased by the addition of this excretion the slimy substances to which aristotle alludes are the agglutinated egg masses of gastropodous mollusks although he failed to see that these masses consist of a multitude of distinct ova and are not a simple homogeneous slime yet in recognizing them as the generative products of testacea he was in advance of the naturalists of the eighteenth century who described these egg masses as distinct species of animals and gave them separate names the ova of other testacea completely escaped aristotle's observation and he supposed these animals to be generated either spontaneously or by budding from the parent which is actually true of some of the animals included by him in the group but which he also supposed to be true of the bivalved mollusks such as oysters and mussels which live in large communities and are often found adhering to each other's valves in masses as though they had budded from each other there was thus a regular series of gradations in the degree of maturity reached by the generative product of different animals at the time of birth corresponding generally with similar gradations in the natural heat of the parents in only one instance did the two series fail to coincide namely in the case of the ovoviviparous fishes which exception is elsewhere explained omitting these the series runs one the fully developed fetus of vivipara yedest of mammalia two the perfect ovum of birds and reptiles three the imperfect ovum of bony fishes of cephalopods and of crustacea four the scolex of insects five the generative slime of certain testacea six the bud as in bivalves ascidians etc seven the absence of all generative product and consequently spontaneous generation as in all lower groups and even occasionally in the higher up to fishes the bloodless animals are divided by aristotle into four great groups the testacea the insecta the crustacea and the mollusca malachia this last group corresponds to the modern cephalopoda 
and in the following pages will be called by that name to avoid the confusion into which we should be led by retaining aristotle's name mollusca this title having acquired a different significance in modern times at the bottom stand the testacea in which are included all the modern mollusca excepting the cephalopods and also the ascidians and the echini their inferiority to the rest is shown by their being completely or almost completely incapable of locomotion by their having that is no motor soul or only dim traces of it so that they are repeatedly spoken of as sedentary monima in opposition to all other true animals which are locomotive kinetica in this respect they resemble plants rather than animals as also they do in many other points such as the absence of sexual distinction there being only one species namely the snails in which there are any grounds for believing such distinction to exist and in their mode of origin for like plants they are generated either spontaneously or by budding or from an excretion produced like the vegetable seed asexually so nearly in fact do they resemble plants that they seem intended by nature to occupy in the sea the place which these occupy on the earth so that they may almost be spoken of as sea plants while plants may be similarly looked on as land testacea they graduate insensibly into plants through the zoophytes the echini and ascidians which are usually reckoned by aristotle as testacea in virtue of their external covering being sometimes apparently included by him in the group of zoophytes still further signs of the inferiority of the testacea as compared with animals capable of greater locomotion are furnished by the simplicity of their structure which accords with the simplicity of their life and by the absence or at any rate the doubtful presence of the higher senses hearing and sight next above the testacea come the segmented animals or insecta in which group aristotle included not only insecta myriapoda and arachnida but also intestinal parasites and in fact all such anulosa as were known to him with the exception of crustacea these were superior to the testacea in the first place because they were capable of locomotion secondly because they had all the five senses and thirdly because they presented generally though not invariably distinctions of sex and reproduced their species by congress they were inferior to the other two groups of bloodless animals in being occasionally sexless and spontaneously developed and in producing when sexual a less perfect generative product videlicet the scolex they are therefore distinctly stated by aristotle to be the coldest of all animals that give off generative products that is of all animals excepting the testacea 
their low position in the scale was also shown by their want of vital centralization for after they have been cut into pieces each segment continues to live independently for a space as though the animal were a plant or an aggregation of distinct animals united into a mass the only reason says aristotle that such a piece does not live still longer is that it has not got the necessary organs of nutrition such as mouth and the like of the two remaining groups of bloodless animals the crustacea and the cephalopods it is not so easy to decide which was held by aristotle to be the more perfect in most respects they were on a par for in both the sexes were always distinct and in both the generative product was an equally immature ovum probably however the first place must be assigned to the cephalopods in virtue of the great size to which they occasionally attain and still more in virtue of their having a brain a mark of superiority distinguishing them from all other bloodless animals we come now to aristotle's second group the sanguineous animals the vertebrata of lamarck and his successors these doubtless from time immemorial have been popularly divided into beasts birds reptiles and fishes aristotle adopted the popular division in the formation of which men had been guided by a happy instinct and in so doing he has been followed by all zoologists until almost in our own day the amphibia have been separated from the reptiles and made to form a fifth class first however he divided his sanguineous group into two subdivisions the vivipara and the ovipara of these the vivipara including the biped man the quadrupedous beasts and the apodous cetacea were manifestly superior to the ovipara for their more perfect organs of respiration and the more mature condition of their young at birth testified indisputably to their greater heat the ovipara include the birds the reptiles and the fishes of these the fishes were clearly at the bottom the stunted character of their external form the absence of lungs and the substitution for them of an inferior organ of refrigeration were unmistakable signs of inferiority but more than all was this shown by their ovum being deposited in an imperfect condition it was true that in one great subdivision of fishes the ovum was not so deposited these fishes were ovoviviparous that is the ovum was hatched inside the body and in some cases the embryo even formed a kind of placental attachment to the mother but says aristotle such ovoviviparity is not to be taken like viviparity for a sign of heat on the contrary it is a sign of cold these fishes are of so cold a nature that they have not enough heat to harden the outside of their ovum into a shell their egg remains soft 
and if extruded in this condition would soon be destroyed. It is therefore retained in the parent's body for security. There remain the reptiles and the birds. It is not easy to decide off-hand which of these was held by Aristotle to be the higher in the scale. One would have thought that the manifest warmth of the one to the touch, and equally manifest coldness of the other, would at once have decided the matter. But strange as it seems, there is no passage, so far as I can ascertain, in which Aristotle recognizes this difference. Yet he had most certainly laid his hand on a living chameleon, and on a living tortoise, for he describes their vivisection, and it is impossible to imagine that he had never touched a living bird. The explanation, I think, is to be found in the fact already stated, that Aristotle drew a wide distinction between ordinary heat and vital heat, and would not allow that touch was any measure of the latter. Tried by his main vital standards, the two groups were on a par. Each had red blood. Each breathed by a lung, and in each this lung was of a bladdery and therefore an inferior character. In each the sexes were invariably separate. Each was oviparous, and in each the ovum was a perfect one, that is, had attained its full size at the time of deposition. The similarity between the ova went moreover still farther, for in each it consisted of a white part and a yellow part, and in each the embryo was provided not only with an umbilical vesicle, but also with an allantois. In all these characters, birds and reptiles resembled each other, and differed from fishes. The two groups, then, were on a par in all their main characters. Still we may, I think, fairly assume that the greater vivacity of birds, their rapid locomotion, their more varied life, and their comparatively erect position, as contrasted with the groveling attitude of reptiles, cannot but have led Aristotle to assign to the former the place of honour. And this accords with a passage where he classes animals by the degrees in which the parental instinct is developed. The purpose of nature, he says, is to give such an instinct to all animals. But in the lowest kinds the instinct ceases to act with the deposition of the eggs. This applies to the bloodless animals and as a rule to fishes. In the next group the instinct lasts till the eggs are hatched and then ceases. This applies to the reptiles, whom he describes as laying their eggs on the ground to be hatched by the heat of the soil, and coming backwards and forwards at intervals to see that no mischief happens to them. A step farther, and we have animals of higher intelligence that continue their care until their young have not only been hatched, but have attained full growth. Such are the birds, and most mammals, while lastly come man, and some few animals of high intelligence, who retain their affection for their young throughout life. Such were the main groups recognized by Aristotle, 
and such the order in which he apparently placed them. It would, I think, not be impossible, nor even very difficult, to apply the same tests to his minor groups, and arrange these also pretty much in the order in which he would himself have placed them. The zoophytes, for instance, would have been classified by him, it may almost be said were classified by him, according to their apparent degrees of sensibility, their freedom from attachment, and generally their less or greater resemblance to plants. The fixed sponges, with their doubtful signs of feeling, being at the bottom, and the free and more manifestly sensitive starfishes at the top, while between them came groups less freely motor than the latter, and yet more clearly sensitive than the former, which were, quote, in fact virtually plants and nothing more, close quote, namely the holothuri and sea lungs, which, though not actually fixed, yet floated at the mercy of the waves like, quotes, detached plants, and were as insensible as sponges, and the achelephi, which, though usually attached to the rocks, could some or all detach themselves at will. Of the testacea again, we can hardly be wrong in supposing that Aristotle would have placed the motor and occasionally sexual turbinata at the top and the sedentary and asexual bivalves at the bottom, while the univalves or limpets, usually fixed but capable of locomotion, would have held the middle place. The greater or less power of locomotion, the presence or absence of the higher senses, the degrees of vital centralization, of which the number of legs formed a criterion, and the position of the body in regard to its elevation above the ground, would have given to the subdivisions of his insecta the following order. Intestinal worms, myriapoda, spiders, hexapodous insects. So we might go on with the other groups, but it is hardly worth while to do so seeing what space the necessary collection of passages would occupy, and how much conjecture, after all, would have to be allowed. It will be as well, therefore, to limit ourselves to the main groups, and these may now be presented in the following tabular form. Roman numeral one, Sanguineous animals, Vertebrata, A. Vivipara, Mammalia, 1. Man. 2. Quadrupeds. 3. Cetacea. B. Ovipara. Alpha. With perfect ovum. 4. Birds. 5. Quadrupeds and apida. Reptiles and amphibia. Beta. With imperfect ovum. 6. Fishes. Roman numeral 2. Bloodless animals. Invertebrata, Alpha, with imperfect ovum, 7. Malachia, Cephalopods, 8. Malacostrica, Crustacea, Beta, with Scolex, 9. Insecta, remaining Arthropoda and some Wermes, Gamma, with generative slime, 
buds or spontaneous generation. 10. Ostracoderma or testacea. Mollusca excepting cephalopods. Delta. With spontaneous generation only. 11. Zoophytes. End of The Main Groups of Animals by William Ogle